You're listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. In the first half of Luke chapter 22, Jesus had partaken of the Last Supper with his disciples and had really prepared them for the hours to come. The fact that he would be betrayed by one of his followers and that they needed to be men of prayer and that they had to watch out because the temptation to deny him was going to grow grow stronger with each passing moment. And now, as we go into the Garden of Gethsemane scene and the actual, actual arrest of Jesus, we're entering into some of the most intimate passages concerning our Lord. And as you look at Jesus in a text like this, uh, there are so many things to learn from his words, but also probably just as many things to learn from his actions. The things that he does, the things that he doesn't do in a moment of genuine pressure and stress upon his life. So he leaves the upper room and it says in verse 39, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So the Passover meal is now complete and they leave the upper room and they go, of course, here it tells us to the Mount of Olives. The other gospels tell us in Mark 14 and John 18 that they went to specifically on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was a place that they were accustomed to going. And so Judas obviously would know of this location and he could easily lead the religious leaders to Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, of course, knowing this about Judas does not change his habit one bit. He still goes to the garden. So the fact that he goes there is basically Jesus accepting the cross and running straight towards it pressing into the event of the cross of Christ. There is probably something very appropriate about Jesus going through in this moment of intense pressure, going through this pressure in a garden. We think about our first parents, Adam and Eve. We think about their failure. They lived in a beautiful, pure, holy, untainted garden, yet they sinned. Here's Jesus in the darkness of this moment, all of hell coming against him, and he will succeed in embracing the cross that had been set before him. Now he tells his disciples going in, he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He'll say it to them later on, but here he introduces that to them, specifically, I think, the temptation to deny him. Pray that you'll not enter into that temptation. And so his heart is for his disciples even to the very end. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, Jesus did not usually withdraw from his disciples, but when he did, it was for this. It was often for prayer. And this time of prayer was not a time of prayer that could be done with others, in tandem with others. 
this was a time of prayer that Jesus needed to conduct all on his own. Now, his disciples could support him in prayer, but the support of ministry in prayer was not going to be actually right there with Jesus. He was still a stone's throw away from them. And he falls down on his knees and he begins to cry out to his father. It is worth noting that before the greatest event in human history, the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus was found praying. Before great movements of God, there is prayer. And before some of the most wonderful things that will ever unfold in your life, there must be prayer. Jesus goes to his father, falls to the ground, kneels down to pray, and cry out to his father. Now, notice that when he prays, the first word out of his mouth is so beautiful because he refers to God as father, father. In other words, the relationship is very intact. And in fact, it is that relationship that drives him to that moment in prayer. And so, father, father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now, the question, of course, is what cup was Jesus asking to have removed? Was this simply just a generic metaphor that Jesus was using for a person's individual lot in life, their fortune, their destiny? This is my destiny. This is my lot in life. Father, remove this particular lot in life or cup from me. Or was this another way of Jesus to refer to his suffering? This suffering, this cup of suffering that I'm drinking of, remove it from me. Or was he referring to the cup of the wrath of God? The Old Testament had alluded to the cup of the wrath of God swirling in a cup. It's clear here that Jesus was anticipating his coming death and rushing toward it. We know that from the rest of the gospel accounts, that Jesus was uh, longing to partake of this, that he set his face like a rock to go to Jerusalem. He would say in John 18, after this moment, he would say to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Jesus wanted the cup. He longed for the cup. When James and John wanted to sit at his right and left hand in his glory, he said, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So when Jesus says this, it's awkward in one sense because we know from his life that he longed to drink this cup in obedience to his father. But in this moment, we are seeing the human element of Christ come to the surface and we're seeing him cry out, Father, remove this cup from me. This is going to be a difficult thing that Jesus would do. And so he's pleading with his father, But isn't it beautiful that he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is holy ground, allowing us to see the terrors of the cross. And Jesus in this moment submits his will to the Father. He comes under the Father's plan for a a broken and lost humanity and says, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, this is actually helpful to us in understanding the importance of the cross of Christ. 
For if there had been any other way for mankind to be redeemed, saved, uh, regenerated, if there had been any other way, then surely the Father would have selected it. But because there was no other way, Christ had to go to the cross. And so Jesus here falls on his face and cries out to his Father. Now, interestingly enough, Luke records in verse 43, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground now this is interesting because angels had comforted jesus after his temptation three years earlier matthew 4 verse 11 says that after the temptation the devil left him and behold angels came and were ministering to him So what this might be an indication of is that, and it's not a stretch for us to imagine this, that Gethsemane here in this garden, like the temptation, was a place of great spiritual war and temptation. And here, after being in prayer, an angel comes and strengthens him from heaven and strengthens him in that moment of prayer. But the prayer was so intense so much agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Either his capillaries began to burst and blood actually began to come, or Luke is just using imagery here to say his sweat became like great drops of blood. It was just profuse, the amount of sweat that was coming from him in this moment where he is praying and crying out. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that he for our sake, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus actually would become sin for us. And that, I think, is what brought such great anxiety upon his heart. I don't know that it was the fear of the physical suffering, although that would be intense, but the spiritual suffering Jesus was about to endure was beyond our imagination. And when he rose from prayer, verse 45, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this is interesting because we learn from Luke why the disciples slept while Jesus prayed. He says that they slept not only for fatigue, perhaps it was partly because of that. It's nighttime, they're praying, closing their eyes. But here we learn that at least part of, if not the full reason that they fell asleep, is that Jesus found them sleeping for sorrow. They were so depressed, so saddened, that they could only sleep. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But the disciples here, sleeping for sorrow, and Jesus stirs them and says, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, for many people, this is an awkward concept because when temptation comes into their lives, they respond by running from God rather than running to God. Almost the thought is, if I'm experiencing temptation, then God is so grossed out by me, by my presence, I must run from him because of this temptation. But the invitation that Jesus said is, look, the temptation is coming. You need to run to God. 
You need to run to God. God is light after all. And so as we come to him, the darkness evaporates. So we are to run to God in temptation. And part of prayer really is building yourself up for the inevitable temptations that will come. Do you want to have strength for temptation that is going to come in your life? Well, then ahead of time, be a person of prayer. These disciples could have known specifically what to pray for and what they'd be tempted to do. For Jesus had told them, you're going to be tempted to deny me. So they could have prayed, Lord, help me to stand. Help me to stand, Father, and not to deny my Lord. Now, in verse 47, it says that while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So Judas comes out with a crowd, we learn. Some guess that this crowd could have been near 200 people in number. Perhaps they thought there was going to be some kind of battle or some kind of conflict. Judas apparently had given an identifier to the authorities and said, the one that I kiss, that's the one that you're looking for. Uh, Many of these people would not have been able to identify Jesus in a crowd. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, Jesus had talked to them about handling a sword and preparing for the future and bracing really for even militant styles of aggression against them. And so here they say, should we use a sword? They had two swords, according to the conversation in the previous half of Luke 22. And so they asked the question, should we strike with a sword? One of them didn't even answer or didn't even wait for Jesus to answer the question, pulled out a sword and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, touched his ear and healed him. It definitely reminds me of all of the messes that I've created over the years, at least the ones I know about, that I've been overzealous and the Lord has been faithful to come behind me and heal people and touch people who I have hurt as a result of my zeal that was misplaced. But Jesus says no more of this. Now, The other Gospels tell us that the man who had his ear cut off was Malchus, and the other Gospels tell us that Peter was the one who actually did this, which is not a surprise, really, I don't think, to any of us. But here, Jesus tells him, listen, you need to stop, no more of this, and touches the ear of Malchus and heals him. Interestingly enough, in just a moment, Peter's going to have a difficult time standing with the Lord and confessing that he knows the Lord. And I think that there's probably a lesson there. It's so often easy to lash out, be angry, and cause a firestorm in the name of Jesus. It's so often easier to do that than it is to be with people who do not know the Lord and to stand for the Lord and to say, yes, I know him. And yes, I love him. And yes, I'm his disciple. Then Jesus, verse 52, said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? 
When I was with you, day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, in this moment, even down to the end, Jesus gives them questions that really were designed to reveal their own sin and asks them, have you come out as against a robber? This would help them understand we're doing the wrong thing. This man is innocent. He is not a robber. That's why we have to arrest him in secret like this. He's not a criminal. And he alludes to that. I was with you day after day in the temple. You didn't lay hands on me then. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This was the time, Jesus is saying, for darkness to operate. Now, by saying that this is the hour and the power of darkness, he's alluding to the idea that this hour was fixed in its limit and and limited by God. It only had a certain amount of time that it could operate. And in its time of operation, obviously, it would be used by God to lead Jesus to the cross where he would atone for the sin of the world. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now, it appears that Jesus endured six trials, three at the hands of the Jews and three at the hands of the Gentiles. The Jewish trials seem to have started at Annas' house, who was the really the older and the legitimate permanent high priest in Israel. But the Romans didn't like anyone to have a permanent position anywhere, so they wouldn't let him be the permanent high priest. So his son-in-law Caiaphas was the high priest, and it appears that the second trial was before Caiaphas at his home. And then finally, a third trial was when the entire Sanhedrin gathered together at Caiaphas's house and pronounced a judgment shortly after daylight had come at around six in the morning. Then, of course, Jesus would be brought to Pilate where he'd go through a trial. Pilate would send Jesus to Herod for a second trial, if you will, and then back to Pilate for a third and final trial at the hand of the Gentiles and a sixth trial within a short period of time. And and so much of this was illegal and shady and done in the dark and expedited in an unlawful kind of way. But they bring him into the high priest's house. And Peter, of course, we notice, followed at a distance. You know, sin is always a slippery slope. Peter followed. We can honor him for that. But the distance there, of course, brought him into sin. The self-confidence that he had, the lack of prayer that he had, now he's following at a distance and with the wrong people. And when he had kindled a fire, they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. Peter sat down among them, verse 55. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him, saying, This man also was with him. But he, Peter, denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. 
So Jesus, of course, had predicted that Peter would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed twice. And here now, a servant girl, along with others, three times ask Peter over the course of this illegal trial, aren't you one of Jesus's disciples? And Peter here boldly declares three times that I don't know the man, finally saying, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And the rooster crows. You know, it reminds us, of course, that without the Holy Spirit, we don't stand a chance in standing up for the Lord. And Peter here, of course, without the Spirit of God living inside of him at this point in his life, did not have the strength and the power of the Spirit to testify for Christ. This, of course, would be the same man who on the day of Pentecost would boldly proclaim the message of the gospel. What would the difference be? Well, the power of God's Spirit would be pumping through Peter there in Acts chapter 2. But the Spirit was not yet present in this man, for Christ had not risen from the grave. We need the strength and the help of the Spirit of God. And the Lord, verse 61, turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I think that when the Lord turned and looked at Peter, that this was a look that was full of grace. I think that Peter must have been looking at Jesus in order for him to know that Jesus had looked at him and for this to be recorded in scripture. But this was a look, I believe, of the grace of Christ. And Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly because sin is bitter in the end. And especially it's bitter in the end when you see the love of Jesus. That's really what it is. So many people have mourned over their sin because of the consequences of their sin. Oh, it hurt a relationship, or I had to deal with someone being upset at me, or I lost my money, or something like that. Some some consequence that is built in and embedded into sin. And of course, sin is pleasurable for a season, but over the long haul, it's painful. It hurts. But the thing that really hurts about sin for a real believer is the disappointment of Christ. That, that Jesus would look upon us and that we would let him down. I think that this is the thing that caused Peter to weep so bitterly. So Peter here weeps, but Jesus goes on in his trial. Now in verse 63 and following, we have the trial of Christ uh, at the hands of the Sanhedrin. So the Jewish trial. Now the men, verse 63, who were holding Jesus in custody, were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So Jesus here was so confident that he did not need to speak. He kept his mouth silent. But of course, they're beating him and mocking him by asking him to prophesy, you know, tell us who it is that just hit you as Jesus is blindfolded and being brutalized, really. I mean, without the chance for his body to flinch or protect itself in any kind of way, no idea where the blows are coming from. Jesus is being pummeled at this particular moment, but silently he is going to go to the cross. When day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, so it's now daylight, just barely. Both chief priests and scribes 
And they led him away to their council and they said, if you are the Christ, so this is now the third trial, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Now, this is very similar to what Jesus had done when they asked him in the temple where his authority had come from. He answered them because he knew that they weren't genuine in their desire to know where his authority had come from. They're trying to trap him with one of their modern definitions of blasphemy. So Jesus asked them, the authority of John, was it from man or was it from heaven? And he did that because he wanted to do something that would demonstrate that they were not being intellectually honest. And here Jesus alludes to the same idea. If I tell you, he says, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So really, he's saying, no matter what answer I give, no matter how I respond, you've already made up your minds. But from now on, Jesus said, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. In other words, I'm confident of this. You've confessed it. Yes, I am the Son of God which, of course, for them was a statement and a claim of deity. They, said, they then said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his lips. So the religious leaders would charge him with blasphemy. That'll be interesting. We'll see in chapter 23 that when they bring Jesus to Pilate, the charge really won't be a blasphemy because they know that Pilate, as a Roman governor, really isn't going to care about the religious disputes among the people of Israel. So they have to bring a different charge. And the charge that they feel will catch his attention is to say, this man made himself a king over and against Caesar. And eventually, of course, Pilate would have to consent to Jesus's crucifixion. But such a powerful passage here in Luke 22. And my encouragement to you, would be to cultivate your personal life of prayer and devotion before the Lord. You see, these disciples, had they spent that time in prayer, apparently, according to Jesus, had they watched and had they prayed, they would have been preserved from the moment of temptation that was coming upon their lives. And it's so important for us to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. I'm going through a little season in my own life right now where I'm just sort of assessing just my own walk with the Lord. And one of the invitations that I keep hearing from the Lord is the invitation to go deeper and deeper and deeper into my personal relationship and enjoyment of him. You might remember there in the book of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel saw the vision of what I believe to be the millennial temple. And at the end of it, he saw the river flowing from the temple itself. And the river, as he saw it, it was at one hand measured by the angel ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, then so deep that you could swim inside of that river. And for me, sometimes I think about that passage and I think about the invitation of the Lord. Nate, you've walked with me to a point. You've gone ankle deep in my presence, but I'm calling you out a little bit further. I want you to experience more of me. And one of the great ways that we can experience more of the Lord, of course, is in a life of devotional prayer unto 
God. I'd encourage you, spend that time in prayer. Build yourself up against the inevitable temptations that are coming. When trials hit, you will be tempted. When sin is abounding, you will be tempted. In days of ease and pleasure, you will be tempted. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.